continuing this morning our six-week series on the multicultural character of the kingdom of God. And this morning we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 18 to 23. I believe that this passage that we are looking at this morning is one of the driving reasons that the gospel and Christianity is present in every country around the globe, and why at this day the gospel is advancing to every people group on the face of this earth. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is describing how he, go, how, he, how he goes about reaching people with the gospel, what his basic strategy is, what his posture is, what his attitude is, and the freedom that the gospel gives him to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law, myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to understand the wonder of your truth, who we are in Christ, and the freedom that that gives us to be like Paul in becoming all things to all people, so that by all means we might win some for your glory. Lord, send your Spirit and work in us to that end, we pray. Amen. There's a man by the name of Bob Lupton who believed that God was calling him to bring the hope, the light, the good news of Jesus to one of the most impoverished areas of Atlanta. As he went there, he was particularly concerned about the economic poverty, the drugs, uh, the lack of education in that community. And so he sought to be what the term is, is incarnational. He wanted to move there to, to, to be like Jesus, to manifest the gospel like Jesus did in that community and to identify with the people there. He reflects on some of his early encounters. He says this, Naively, when I moved in there, I attempted to fit in by learning abonics, developing a taste for collard greens, and listening to rap. One of my curious neighbors asked me, why do you act like that? It was apparent to him, and probably to all my neighbors, that I was a white guy trying to act black, and it didn't work. Instead of identifying with my African-American neighbors, I was pretending to be something that I was not. There were a few things that gave me away. Skin color was the most obvious. And the size of my house. And my boat. It was immediately obvious to my neighbors that I was a person of privilege. Moreover, I was a person of white privilege. And if I was ever to be accepted as a trusted neighbor, I would have to become authentic. I would have to embrace who I really am, a white, educated, middle-class connected male struggling with his own racial cultural baggage while trying to be an engaged, non-patronizing member of the community. But this was much easier said than done. His statement, instead of identifying with my African-American neighbors, I was pretending to be something that I was not. I believe in this passage, Paul 
expresses and describes in his own life how this how a core principle of the gospel was at work in him and at work through him. A core principle that I believe is one of the driving reasons that Christianity exists in every country of the globe. So it's a, the very principle that is essential to the advancement of the gospel around the globe. It is also essential for our own personal growth in our relationship with the Lord and essential to the advancement of the gospel in this community. Well, what is that principle? It begins like this, is that we must first find our identity in Jesus Christ. Paul begins with a very shocking statement. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. That would most likely be the Jews. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. That is a rather confusing statement that Paul makes. I mean, even after converting to Christianity, Paul is more of a Jew than almost any Jew that he would encounter. I mean, Paul was of Jewish lineage. He was of the proudly of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin had a distinct honor because they were the tribe that had the first king of, king of Israel. They were a royal tribe. They were small but, but proud. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. His family engaged in all the Jewish practices. They went to synagogue every week. They practiced the rituals. They practiced the things that the law of God required them to do. And when Paul grew up, he grew up to be a Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel. He, had, he received the best education. He had a better education than almost every Jew that he encountered. He was trained in Jewish ways and Jewish customs. If anybody was Jewish, it was Paul. I mean, Paul was a Jew's Jew, if you will. And so for Paul to say, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. That would make, seem to us to make about as much sense as, I don't know, a, a captain in the Navy saying, to those under my command, I became like a naval officer. To those under my command, I became like a captain. It would make about as much sense as a mother saying, to my children, I became like a mother. The response would be, what are you talking about? This is who you are. This is, this is what you do. How can Paul say to the Jews, I became as a Jew, I became like a Jew? Well, for Paul, there was something greater than his exter- these external factors that was his identity. Is that Paul could very easily say, yes, this is the family that I'm from. Yes, this is the education that I received. Yes, this is the religious pra- practices better than anyone else. These are the religious practices that I, engaged in, that I engaged in. But that's not who I am. In fact, I have an identity that is far greater. And in Jesus Christ, you too have, an, have a greater identity An identity that's not defined by the things of this world, that's not defined by your race, not defined by your family heritage, not defined by your wealth, not defined by your job, not defined by your class, not defined by how popular you are, but it is defined by one thing, and that one thing is who you are in Jesus Christ. The Jews believed themselves to be the superior race. I mean, after all, they were the ones who received God's covenant promise through Saul and through the lineage of David. After all, they were the one who was the the chosen people of God. How on earth could Paul say to a Jew, I became like a Jew? 
It's because his identity was found in Jesus Christ. Stop and think for a minute about yourself. What are you known for? Someone had to describe you. If your friends or family described you, how would they describe you? How would you describe yourself? If you had to say, say who you are in 30 seconds or less, what would you say? All the answers to that question is, is all of the answers to those questions is answering a deeper question, which is where do you find your identity? What are the things that define you? And the challenge for any one of us is that if you're finding your identity in anything outside of Christ, you live your life in attention. If you find your identity in your career, when things are going well, you feel great. But if things go bad, you feel like a failure. If you find your identity in anything else, it'll lead you to either arrogance and judgmentalism or it'll lead you to despair. Take, for example, maybe you're trying to find your identity in being a good parent or that you are a, your identity is that you're a good Christian parent. If that's where your identity is, it'll lead you to arrogance or to despair. Because what will happen is that when your kids are doing well, which is defined by my children are making me look good in front of other people, When your children are doing well, is that you look at them and you say, oh, isn't that great? Everything that we've been trying to do is finally working. And then you see, and it leads to arrogance. And you look at other people and you see other families that are having challenges and problems. And you're like, well, if if, if they just did the things that we did, they wouldn't be having the issues that they're having. If if, if they just, you know, parented their child like we were, if they would just take God's word seriously and do the thing that God calls them to, they wouldn't be having those issues. It leads us to the arrogance and judgmentalism. But then what happens for those people who bind their identity in that, what happens is that oftentimes God brings them to a point and shows them that their little system doesn't work as well as they thought it did. That the hope that they need to have for their life and their children is not how good of a parent they are, but the hope that they need to have is Jesus Christ. And so what happens then oftentimes is when something goes wrong and maybe one of those children all of a sudden isn't making you look so good and those children, that child does something very publicly that draws into question your judgment in your parenting, it leads you to despair. And maybe you realize something, oh, if I had known this before, things would have been different. If I had known this before, I wouldn't have have done these things, and this is why my kids have turned out the way, positively positively or negatively, and it leads you to arrogance or despair. In all of our life, whatever you are finding your identity in, that burden exists. For when it works, you become arrogant, and when it doesn't work, you become despairing and depressive. Let me get a little bit more specifically of how this works out in our own life. Is that I think within every person, but especially here in this community, the way that, that, that we, are, we are so prone to self-justifying pride is that we just, we are hardwired, and we would say rightfully so, to just think that we're better than everybody else. I mean, whatever school that I went to, it was better. If I went to the Naval Academy, of course that's better than the other academies, right? If I, went to the, if I went to West Virginia, well, of course that was a better engineering school than those that went to Virginia Tech. Of course, wherever it is, my education was just, was, was just better. And then it turns into your career choices. Well, the career choices that I've made, I'm, I'm just, they're just better. You know, I mean, if I went into engineering, well, obviously I have a superior problem-solving ability than other people. And obviously, the problem-solving skills that I learned in this are superior to any other discipline that would execute problem-solving skills, because if they did, they'd all be engineers just like me, right? Or people that all of a sudden that decide to go into the social services arena, they say, they're, 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 my career choice is better. Why? Because I didn't sell out for money. 
I'm living a career actually serving other people. I'm investing in other people. I'm not living for personal gain and personal advancement. My career choice is, is I think it's better because of the virtues that I have with it. Or you take, do you work for the government or are you a contractor? Whichever one you are, you just think it's better than the other people, right? Because the government people are saying, well, hey, you know, I value my family over those things. I'm willing to take a lower salary so that I can serve my family. And plus the fact, I don't want to be one of those slimy contractors that's always raping the government for more money, right? And the contractors are saying, well, hey, I mean, after all, I mean, I actually do work. I'm not one of those... I'm not one of those lazy government employee. I'm not one of those lazy government employees that's just taking the taxpayers for a ride, right? Whichever one it is, I'm I'm just better. Well, how does that turn out into our areas of like parenting or how about mothering? Well, let's start talking about birthing plans, right? Because whichever one you choose, I mean, it's just better than what other people did. I mean, mine's more natural. Mine's more holistic. I care for the health and medical well-being of my child. Mine's happier. It's better unites us as a family. Whichever one you choose, it's just naturally better. And anything else in your life, just let me just answer the question right now. What I did was better, right? I mean, it works through. There's this self-justifying aspect in every area of your life. Do you public school? Do you private school? Do you homeschool? Do you do something different? I don't know, but whatever the choice I made is better than the way other people chose. And so there is this self just and, and, and every time that we do this, our identity becomes more and more bound in these decisions and becomes more and more defining of who we are. And again, if that goes well, it leads us to arrogance, I'm better. And if it doesn't go well, it leads us to despair. I, I messed everything up. I'm such a failure. This past week, we were up at a training with Tim Keller. So here's a little bit of Keller for your benefit. Um, He identifies it this way, the struggle. He says, feeling superior to others is the impulse of self-justifying pride. And so he brings us to bear particularly on the issues of race and cultural engagement. And he says this, the way that conservatives and moralists respond to culture and the issue of racial reconciliation is that conservatives idolize their culture as supreme. I don't have a culture. This is just the right way to do things. I don't have a culture. This is just the right way to interact. And they view their culture as supreme, and they judge and condemn other cultures. And the way that the relativists or liberals respond, as Keller identifies, he says, what relativists and liberals do is that they go on and say, you know, all, they relativize all cultures and say, well, we can just all get along because there is no truth. But what the gospel does is the gospel leads us to be somewhat critical of all cultures, especially our own. Because we know two things. One, we know that there is a truth, and that truth is objective and real. And also, we know that we're not better than anybody else. That we're not better than anybody else because we're saved by grace alone. And all of the blessings and benefits in my life that I have are wholly and only the work of God's grace in my life. The only reason why I can do the things that I can do and be successful in the way that I've been successful is because God, in his divine providence, has chosen to bless me in that way. All that I am, all that I have, all that I can do is wholly a work of God's grace. I'm not better than anybody. So when it comes to cultural engagement, Keller adds on this. He says, the gospel requires each cultural group to flex as it serves others. To flex and to not demand that your cultural preferences are inherently better, more moral, more spiritual 
than another culture's preferences. And the differences, particularly in a church when it comes to engaging other cultures, range from small to great. They range from small things like punctuality. Do you show up on time or do you not? It ranges from worship service style. Do you have a service structure? Do you not have a service structure? It ranges from emotional expression within that service structure. Why are those people always raising their hands? Why do those people never raise their hands? It ranges from emotional expression to how sermons are done and preached. And some of you might be sitting here and you're listening to this and you listened to me last week and you say, you know what? I, I don't like all this cultural stuff. I don't like thinking about how to engage the culture in those aspects. I mean, I just want to go to a church where someone's just going to preach the word, where they're just going to preach the word. I appreciate that desire. But if you think that that is just an objective desire, you are wholly unaware of how much your culture has influenced you. Because to just preach the word means very different things to different cultures. It means very different things to different socioeconomic classes. It means, it means and it sounds very different. And everybody's saying, all I want is I just want somebody to preach the word. And there's an enormous amount of cultural assumptions and projections that are going on in that statement and what exactly is meant by that. But the amazing thing about the gospel is the gospel gives us a radical freedom. And it gives us a radically new freedom because our identity is bound in Jesus Christ. And because our identity is found in Jesus Christ, it frees us from both arrogance and judgmentalism. It frees us from pride and despair. It frees us from the need to be right and to have the operating, opening assumption that I'm right and I'm better and the way that I'm doing things are right and better than what anyone else would suggest. Because Jesus Christ, in him, I have a greater identity that first and foremost, far above all else, I am bound in Jesus Christ and that is who I am at my core and in my essence. That I'm a person who was created in the image of God and had inherent worth, value, and dignity simply because of that. But I turned away from the Lord, each and every one of us. And in turning away from the Lord, Scripture says that you were strangers to the promises of God. You were foreigners. You were even enemies of God. But while you were an enemy of God, Christ died for you. That Jesus Christ took the initiative, that he crossed the cultural barrier so that you could be forgiven, your guilt and shame washed away, your filth covered with the beauty and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You could be made a citizen of heaven, adopted as a child of God with worth, value, and purpose. Because now what defines you is who you are in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what it was for the Apostle Paul which is why he could say to the Jews, I became like a Jew because what defined him was not his Jewishness, but who he was in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, slightly differently. What defined Paul was not his Christianness and the expression of Christianity. What defined Paul was who he was in Jesus Christ. We must find our identity in Christ. And what that leads us to is that when we find our identity in Christ, it frees us to identify with others. Notice the freedom Paul has here. I mean, consider the mind-blowing freedom that Paul is about to describe. 
Consider the reaction of Jewish groups to what Paul is about to say. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. That is, to those who were opposed to every aspect of Jewishness, I became like one who was opposed to every aspect of Jewishness. It's a remarkable statement. A remarkable freedom he has. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. I didn't flash my authority. I didn't flash my credentials. I didn't flash my strength. I didn't say, hey, why don't you just be like me? Look how tough I am. Just gird yourself up and come on, man. No, he says, to the weak, I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. How could Paul, a Jew, second to none as a Jew, engage non-Jewish culture? A culture about which other Jews would spit at the name of Gentiles, for example. How could he do that? It was because his identity was in Jesus Christ. How can a Christian engage a non-Christian culture? It's by finding your identity in Jesus Christ. Now, lest we get confused, Paul is quick to point out, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul is saying, listen, I'm never going to sin in doing this. That where participating in something would compromise the gospel, we must abstain. And Paul abstained. Where participating would compromise the gospel, we must abstain. But where abstaining would create a barrier to the gospel, we should most likely participate. should participate. Why? Because Paul says, I become all things to all people so that by all means I might win some. And Paul was willing to go to, very, to extreme lengths to meet people to create an opportunity for the gospel. And not only did he do it himself, but he also required it of his companions. Consider Timothy. He was half Greek, half Jew. They were going into an area, and there were going to be a lot of Jewish people there. And Paul says, Timothy, you're not circumcised. They're not going to accept you unless you're circumcised. What happens? Paul circumcises Timothy as an adult man. Why? I believe so that they could become all things to all people. For Timothy... A week of my personal pain is worth saving them from an eternity of pain. Willing to go to great lengths so that others, so that the obstacles to the gospel would be removed. So to, put it, to, to summarize it, it goes like this. To the extent that our identity is found in something other than Jesus, we must repent. To the extent that your identity is found in your career, your position, your role as a parent, your race, your class, to the extent that that is where your identity is found, we must repent. And to the extent that people perceive that our identity is in something other than Jesus, we must flex greatly. We must flex greatly, such as Timothy doing. Now, let me give you two examples of this in our own congregation. In fact, these are cultural examples. These are not examples of uh, race. These are not race examples. But rather, it has to deal with the officer and enlisted dynamic that is a present within military culture, particularly within, within Navy culture. 
So a couple of the weeks, a couple, a uh, little bit ago, there was someone who had been coming to Cornerstone who was enlisted, did a short, to- did a short time, got out, and now works in our community. And they came, came for a while, and then they stopped coming. And so our office followed up with them, said, hey, we haven't been in Cornerstone, I want to invite you to some events, I want to get you connected. Thanks for, the, thanks for the call, I appreciate that. We decided to go to another church. Hmm. That's interesting, well, why is that? Well, you know, the people were really friendly and really enjoyed the worship service, and I was really, I was really getting a whole lot out of it. But I just felt like I was back on the boat. What do you mean by that? Well, like, you know, when I was on the boat, you know, in the Navy, you know, I'd be on, on duty and I'd, I'd, we'd interact with officers and they'd joke with us and, and um, you know, we'd hang out and have good, t- good interaction and have a good time, you know, working together. But the next day I'd pass them in the hallway and they wouldn't even look at me. They wouldn't even make eye contact with me, let alone know my name. It's like, Really? Yeah, and I was sitting in a small group here with some officers. And we had a great time in small group. But you know, the next Sunday I was walking down the hall and they wouldn't even look at me and didn't even address me. I felt like I was just back on the boat. Wow. Now, you know, personally, Obviously, it's hard to hear that and surprised by that because, as you all know in our church, there are people of every rank who regularly interact with each other, regularly have dinner and, and meals at other people's places. You know, it's not an uncommon thing that to have a service project that an enlisted guy is leading and to have officers serving under, in, in that service project uh, under the lead of that, of that enlisted guy. It's a regular thing that happens. But the perception was, oh, wait a second. I'm just back on the boat if I'm, if I'm in the small group and if I'm here. I'm going to go somewhere else where I don't feel that way. Now, let me give you a positive example. This was, and Kathy Eastberg gave me permission to share this, much to her embarrassment, um, and I appreciate her doing so. Um, this was right after uh, Steve made admiral and was command, um, commander of NOC AD. And a couple Sundays after that, Kathy was one of our greeters at the door of the church. And um, this couple walks in, and uh, Kathy looks at them, and you know, they introduce, they meet each other, and Kathy says, oh, do you work on, do you work on, on base? The haircut was a giveaway. And um, he's like, yeah, I, I work on base. And Kathy's like, oh, that's great. What do you do? And he said, oh, well, I'm enlisted. Um, I, you know, I work in air, aircraft maintenance. And they're like, oh, that's wonderful. You know, so glad you're here. A lot of people here work on base. And they said, um, well, do you... Do you do you work on base? No. Does your husband work on base? Yeah, my husband works on base. Oh, really? What does your husband do? And Kathy says, I love Kathy. Kathy says, honestly, I have no idea what he does. <laughs> right? She's like, I know he travels a bunch, and, and he does stuff, and he goes to work, and he comes home, and we get a paycheck, and I have no idea what he does. <laughs> Can I help you get to you know get get your kids in get get your kids in the Sunday school? Well, two weeks later, two weeks I was sitting there and I was watching that thing and I was like, I love Kathy. Two 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 weeks later, I was we were in the foyer again and this couple comes up to me and Kathy's on the other side of the other other side of the foyer, and um, this the lady says to me, Do you know who that is? It's like yeah, that's that's Kathy. No, do you know who that is? 
yes, I do. No, that is. Like, that is Cassie Eastberg. Like, I know, that's Cassie Eastberg. Like, do you know who her husband is? And I said, yes, her husband loves Jesus and is a committed follower of him. And they said, you don't understand. Her husband is Steve Eastberg. And I said, yeah, I know that. Why don't we go talk to them again, right? And it just so happened that Steve and Kathy were hosting a visitor's lunch, and um, uh, a couple weeks later had that family over to their house for dinner with the other visitors that were coming. And the lady's response to that afterwards was, you know, I have never spoken to an admiral's wife in my life. And Kathy's not what I expected. And I said, you know what? She's not what you expected. I agree with you. And that's because Kathy finds her identity in Jesus Christ. And she loves Jesus, and she wants other people, wants other people to know Jesus. And what happened there? Well, all of a sudden, you see Kathy having that her identity is found in Jesus Christ. It gives her immense freedom to flex greatly, to not flash her status, not flash her card, not flash her husband's rank. And, and, and you know, do you know how far below your husband is than my husband in the midst of the, this, this interaction? But instead did so much that this, that this couple felt loved and felt welcome and, and felt like, wow, there is something different about these people. I've never interacted with an officer that high up the way that I've interacted with them. Praise the Lord. Why? Because their identity was bound in Jesus Christ, right? That because they were in Christ, it freed them to identify with other people. Now, it's important for us to know, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul go to such great lengths to identify with others? He tells us, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So that I might save some. You know, when I talk to people, some people here, when I talk to Christians about their identity being in Jesus Christ, what do they need to lay down? What obstacles would people look at you and say, if someone was different than you, what obstacles would people see and say, oh, I don't know, I can't relate to them, I'm not like them? What would they say? And, ha- and then I encourage them and say, well, you know, the gospel gives us this freedom to become all things to all people, to lay those things down, that your identity is bound in Jesus Christ, it's not in these other things. The most common response I get from people was, well, if I knew that laying this down would really lead someone to Christ, I'd do it. If I knew that making this change Changing, changing how we do church, changing music, changing the way we dress. I don't care. Pick, pick the issue. If I, knew that we, if I knew that if we made that change that that would lead someone to Christ, then I would do it. Sure, I, I'd, I'd do that. Is that what Paul's after? It's not. You see, we want to guarantee, we want guaranteed success. We want a guaranteed return on our investment. That if I'm going to lay down this much, that the Holy Spirit better be doing at least a tenfold response to my effort here and giving me a return on my investment. Because if not, if I don't have the guarantee of doing that, I don't want to lay things down. Why would I give those things up? Well, here's why Paul, Paul gave things up. He gave them up so that someone might be saved. Not so that someone would be saved, but so that the possibility simply existed. So that someone would possibly come to Christ. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Not so that there would be guaranteed success, but rather so that the possibility would simply exist. 
so that any perceived obstacle to the gospel would be removed, so that any barrier to the gospel, he would flex greatly, so that there would be nothing about him that would be an impediment to the gospel. And he flexed greatly so that there would be simply the possibility that, they, that he might save some people. Well, how do we go about identifying with others, particularly when it comes to this area of race and reaching other cultures? Here's one thing in particular, is that there is a need for the majority culture who spends their days in life living and breathing in the majority culture. There is a need for the majority culture to understand their own culture, and in particular to understand how offensive majority culture often is without even knowing it. Why? So that your culture isn't a barrier to the gospel. As a church, this principle of what Paul is demonstrating is actually one of our church's core values. The way that we say that is that we're a gospel-centered church. We're a kingdom-driven church. We're a prayer-inspired church. We are an incarnate church. And what that means is that just as God incarnated himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that the world could be reconciled to God and one another, just as God became like us, being identified with us so that we could be reconciled to God, as a church, we model the incarnation and manifesting the love and truth of Jesus Christ to Southern Maryland and wherever we serve. What does that practically mean? It means that as a church, we're committed to changing. We're committed to changing every preference that you like. Why? Because we don't want our preferences to be a barrier to the gospel. We want to go to great lengths to reach other people. So that wherever someone is, that they would feel welcome here. Yes, as a church, God has positioned us, I would say even uniquely positioned us, to reach Navair professionals. That's what God's done through us. But in doing that, which I believe God's still calling us to do, we need to do so in such a way that there's not a barrier for people who don't fit that mold. To be a part of our church. And to, be in, to have an impediment to the gospel because of the cultural things that we assume upon and presume upon. How do you reach people? How do you help people show the love, and, love of Jesus Christ? Each one of us needs to answer that question ourselves. But like the Apostle Paul, it begins with a by all means possible attitude. It means I'm going to engage in all means possible. I will become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might... I might win some. Not only is that necessary for us for the advancement of the gospel in this community, but it's also necessary for your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you build your identity mainly on your class, on your gender, on your sexual orientation, if you build your identity on your race or your culture or your moral standards or your Christian practices, you will necessarily disdain Anyone who lacks what you consider to be the cornerstone of your significance. If you consider your masculinity to be a core aspect of your identity, you will disdain necessarily anyone who is questioning their gender. If you find your own sexual orientation to be a cornerstone of who you are and your identity, you will necessarily necessarily disdain Those who engage in other sexual behavior. 
But the gospel frees us. If your identity is in Christ, as we find our identity in Christ, the gospel frees you to love and to enjoy all individuals, all people groups, and to boldly and courageously identify with them. Our identity is in Christ Jesus. And because our identity is in Christ, it frees us. It liberates us to identify with others so that by all means possible, we might save some. And by God's grace through the working of the Holy Spirit, we might save many. Let's pray to that end. Father, we come before you. Lord, we confess our lust to find an identity in the things of this world. To find it in our status, our role, our rank, our parenting, our race, the decisions that we've made. Lord Jesus, save us. Save us from ourselves. Lord, save us from these counterfeit gods that we think promise us security and abundant life, Lord, but only rob us of those very things and leave us empty. Lord, send your spirit to work in us that we would find our identity only and wholly in you. And as we find our identity in you, Lord, that that would give us freedom to celebrate the blessings that you've given us, to freedom to, to recognize and acknowledge the, the, the privilege the authority, the access that we have in our society, and that it would give us the freedom to use all those things, that your name might be honored and praised among every people group of this world. Lord, set us free so that by finding our identity in Christ, you would use us to identify with others so that by all means possible, surely never sinful, but that by all means possible, by your Spirit, in the working of your grace, we might win some. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with me. Let's continue to reflect on this sermon, on the message, um, on who we are in Christ, our identity in him, and let's sing in Christ alone, our only hope. my strength, my song. 